You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is Lecture 3 from the collection of lectures entitled Inner Reading and Inner Hearing and How to Achieve Existence in the World of Ideas. Lecture 3 is entitled The Vowels and Consonants of the Spiritual World, given in Dornach on October 5th, 1914. From the considerations we developed yesterday and the day before, you will have realized that esoteric reading and esoteric hearing consist in experiences of the human soul. I have used various analogies to present how we must first become one with the signs that offer themselves to the seer in the imagination, and then, obviously, with what meaning these signs convey about spiritual realities. I want to give you first a more precise idea as far as possible in these few lectures, of what is necessary to rise from unordered clairvoyance to disciplined real clairvoyance that we can actually call esoteric reading and esoteric hearing. The first topic I will discuss could be called the vowel system of the spiritual world. It is, of course, expressed fundamentally by analogy. How one learns to hear and read the vowels of the spiritual world is obviously a a much more inward process than are any processes of ordinary life. And only through many circumlocutions will we be able to approach what we could call the experience of the vowels, the vowels of the cosmos. From what I alluded to yesterday, you will have understood that one can speak of seven such vowels but we can symbolically establish a parallel with the planetary system. Now let us return once again to what I mentioned yesterday as an example, the seeking of one who is dead. I started with that and attempted thereby to explicate the kind of experiences through which we gradually grow into the experience of the spiritual world. We have heard that we, through the different preparations the visionary must first work through, see a series of images. We actually stand in relation to these things, fundamentally as one would toward the things in the outside world. We also stand in relation to a dream image in the same way as to the things of the outside world. Only gradually do we succeed in getting to the point, as we have seen, where we can identify ourselves with the images, devour them, so to speak, where we become one with the images and live entirely within them. However, we must first, excuse me, we must keep firmly in mind that when these images finally lead us to finding the dead person or some other event or being in the spiritual world, They are the signs of spiritual realities. As images, they are in fact themselves realities. By themselves, they express a spiritual reality. 
They are there, these images. The question must now arise. Are these images only there when the seer prepares appropriately and gets to the point of seeing them? They are not there only then, and this is very important to keep in mind. Assume that you are standing or sitting in some place and are sufficiently prepared to see something, a series of images, so wavering, so ephemeral, appears before your soul. Now, suppose that instead of a seer, another person arrives at seeing this series of images, someone who hasn't a trace of the seer's gift and sees only ordinary images from the physical world in the surroundings. Are these images then not there? They are always there. They are rightly and properly always there. Expressed in another way, as I did in my discussion the day before yesterday, we are indeed inside the bouquet. Our perception of it rests on the reflection through our own organism. The moment prepared seers get to the point of having a related spiritual being in their imagination before their soul, they are also inside it. Through the subsequent procedure of identifying themselves with it, they accomplish only a process of consciousness. In truth, they are inside the being. But not only seers are inside it. Any time individuals encounter an object with ordinary physical eyes and physical imagination, they are not only within the physical object, which indeed, as we have seen, is nothing other than an illusion, but are also inside the spiritual being. We are always inside spiritual beings that are not physically incarnated. Therefore, we are always inside the images seen, in part, by seers. The images are also constantly in our surroundings, and we are always inside them. They remain imperceptible, invisible, because human powers of perception are too dull and too coarse to perceive these subtle weaving beings and formations with their ordinary coarse senses. That is expressed abstractly. We can come up with still another question. Why can't we perceive what is flowing about in the world within which we in fact exist? Why is that? We first learn this when we begin to identify ourselves with the imaginations, when we really carry out the process I discussed yesterday. Then we learn why we human beings cannot be conscious within the spiritual world, which is nonetheless all around us. How does one learn it? Let it be said once more. A series of images stands before the soul. We try to identify ourselves with it, to digest it, so to speak. We unite with the series of images and are inside it at this stage. In this moment we know the answer to the question about why we must, in fact, remain outside our body. Why we must, so to speak, go outside our body and identify ourselves with the series of images on the outside if we wish to perceive it and why we can only receive the images, as we have seen, reflected from our own etheric body. 
we learn why it is necessary, why it is so arranged. Through what we experience with these images, when we have identified ourselves with them, we know the following directly. If, after identifying ourselves completely with a series of images, we were to go back into the physical body, if we did not remain outside and wait until the etheric body reflects the essence of the images, we would carry everything we have become one with into our physical body, into the space enclosed by the skin, and we would immediately destroy the physical body to the point that it would be ripe for death. It would immediately be the seed of death in the physical body. When death does make its entrance in earthly existence, the soul has reached the point that it can identify itself with what in the normal course of life lives outside as imagination. Then death really does enter. So you see, we can take seriously, in the deepest possible way, something that permeates all esoteric considerations like a powerful motto. It is the statement made by all those who have become esotericists in the true sense of the word. The moment one arrives at true clairvoyance, the experience is that of standing in the company of death. One reaches the portal of death. I have often stressed this from other points of view. One learns to recognize what it is like for a person who steps through the portal of death. One cannot arrive at clairvoyance without going through this serious, powerful moment, which esotericists designate as standing before the portal of death. But we learn something else as well. I have already alluded to it once in a series of lectures held in Munich, but from another point of view. We learn to pose from then on in deepest seriousness a vital question of spiritual science. We learn to ask, how is it really with us human beings? since we still fundamentally live constantly in a fluctuating web of spiritual entities that we cannot bring into our physical bodies without bringing in the seed of death. Outside we are always surrounded by imaginations. We are right in the middle of a sphere of imaginations, but they must not come inside us. What then comes into us from these imaginations? Shadowy images reflections, mirror images, as our thought, as our ideas. On the outside are the full-blooded, real imaginations. They reflect themselves in us. We experience them in the diluted, shadowy form of our thoughts and ideas. If we were to bring them into us in their full-bloodedness, instead of merely bringing them to reflection, we would stand in every moment before the danger of death. What is really going on in this? Nothing less is going on than that we are protected by the world order from experiencing the spiritual entities and processes surrounding us in their full-blooded state. <clears throat> we are protected because, in our ordinary everyday consciousness, only shadows of these full-blooded spiritual entities touch us, and yet a great many of these imaginations belong to us, belong to the powers 
that are creatively active in us. In this world of imaginations, the creative forces live in us. We may not experience them in their original form, but only in the shadowy form in which they are in us as thoughts. They can only be so because someone takes away in ordinary experience this experience of the imaginations that belong to our thoughts. But they must be experienced. Because we cannot experience them, they must be experienced by stronger beings than we are, by beings that can support them in their spiritual and soul organism without coming into mortal peril. While we think, while we live with our soul, we must be continuously ruled by a being that takes away from us the imaginations lying at the foundations of our thoughts and ideas. If you have any thought, anything at all that you experience in your soul, a world of imaginations outside corresponds to that experience. And a being must have control over you that protects you, looks out for you, and watches over you, a being that takes away from you what you cannot accomplish. Now we are at a place where we can speak in a more real sense that has hitherto been possible about the entities of the next higher hierarchy, about the angels. Now these beings are within our grasp. We see how they must watch over and protect what we ourselves cannot accomplish. However, it can happen, and for seers it must happen, that they perceive what I have just said much more clearly. That is what happens when they progress one level further in their visionary powers. We mentioned yesterday what leads to our identifying with the imagination, the series of images that appears before us. This identifying is experienced in such a way that we digest the imaginations, which exist outside us, but we experience ourselves in them. We are one with them. But the matter can go even further. I will begin first with the description of the subjective experience. I said yesterday that we arrive at it, as I have described over and over again, when we immerse ourselves in meditation, in concentration. There we get to the point of experiencing a series of images with which we can identify ourselves. I also said yesterday that when one has called up such a series of images through mediation, excuse me, meditation and concentration, and has tried to get into them, then esoteric reading and hearing, the real perception of the spiritual essence of the dead person one seeks, do not necessarily arise immediately. The process may break off just as a process in a dream breaks off, and whatever should appear as a consequence can appear later. However, if we progress further, if we have the necessary patience and endurance to progress ever further in esoteric development through meditation and concentration, then we experience the process in yet another way. We can experience it in the following manner we set before us the task of observing a being, a process, in the spiritual world. 
we establish ourselves in meditation, in concentration, thereby drawing ourselves out of the physical body. We then pass into the condition where the content of the soul, which we ourselves have called up through meditation, ebbs away. We sense the transition and notice that it is growing dark in a way. What we have called up in our soul ebbs away and there emerges a series of images that are much livelier than those in dreams. Now we are consciously in the presence of the series of images and when we know we are in its presence we dive consciously into them. And again a moment may come when we know that we are that we have identified ourselves with the series of images we have become one with it we are within it however we no longer feel ourselves we feel as if we were going under in the universe the cosmos and as if we were in general nothing within it we have identified ourselves with the series of images have totally dissolved them and have received nothing in their place However, through the practice of meditation, we must acquire the strength not to quail, not to despair, not to believe that we are now dissolving into nothingness. We have the confidence not to come to the feeling of total abandonment we might easily come to. In brief, we are diving as if we were swimming into nothingness, into the universal cosmos. And then it is like awakening, not from sleep, but rather from something fully conscious. In the moment of waking, we know that it was not sleep. We have not lived through it as we live through the void of consciousness in sleep. It was something else. In it, something occurred in the interval, something at which we were present. And now we have woken up again and events that we could not experience in a fully conscious state are coming into our consciousness and we know very clearly that we have experienced them. It is like a recollection. We remember something that we have not worked through with the ordinary self but have experienced in such a way that we were raised out of our ordinary self. And when it enters our consciousness, we experience the thing we set out for, the thing we set as our task. Now we know that we have lived through something. We could say lived as a thinking being through something. Parenthesis thinking, however, here has a much higher significance than in the physical. Close parenthesis. We have thinkingly lived through something. However, no matter how far developed we are as human beings, what we can be as a human being cannot approach what we went through while we were in the relative nothingness. <clears throat> human beings cannot think through that. They cannot thinkingly live through it. For that reason, in the time between the diving under and resurfacing, Another being must have taken over the function of thinking for us, of thinking inside us. We could not think on our own. 
We can only remember afterward what this being, this angelic being, thought in us. We know that in the interval we were interwoven with our angelic being, which thought for us while our consciousness was suppressed. Now we awaken and remember with ordinary thought experience what the angel experienced and thought in us. That is the process. It is the way spiritual experiences are usually attained. We attain them in such a way that we know we must first arrive at a state in which a being of the next higher hierarchy enters into us, identifies itself with us. Then what we could not in our own weakness achieve, we are capable of achieving through the being of the next higher hierarchy. But with muted consciousness. We are not permitted the immediate experience. It comes later in memory, in the full I consciousness. So in actuality, the spiritual experiences we are granted are experienced at one time and become conscious to us at another. For example, I have related something I experienced concerning our dear friend Christian Morgenstern, a real experience of this sort. But it first became conscious only after the experience, because during the experience a being of the next higher hierarchy had to take over the function of knowledge. Once again you can reflect on why it must be so. Were we actually to bring what a being of the higher hierarchies experiences into our organism, then not only would we kill our own organism, but we would burst its organization apart into its atoms. We would bring about not only its death, but also its simultaneous cremation. Now you see once again that our seership brings us into a relationship with what we call the portal of death. We can say that we can only really see what death is, what death means, by raising ourselves into moods of the soul that emerge through the described experiences. For through that we understand human individuality outside the physical body and know how it must be immediately taken up outside the physical body into the bosom of the beings of the higher hierarchies so that it does not become destructive or lethal to our own being on the physical plane. And the feeling of the human soul resting in the bosom of a being of the higher, higher, higher hierarchies will become real, infinitely real. Then, for the first time, we will know how it looks beyond death. We will know that here on earth we are surrounded by the mineral kingdom, the plant, animal and human kingdoms. Beyond death, we enter into the bosom of the higher hierarchies, to whose environment we belong, as here we belong to the environment of the physical beings that surround us. A certain feeling of communality with the beings of the higher hierarchies comes into our soul. We can permeate ourselves with this feeling, and we learn properly that a true penetration into the spiritual worlds is not at all possible without bringing with us certain feelings, which can be called religious and pious feelings, feelings of devotion to the higher spiritual world. 
The feelings I have just described are so nuanced that they elicit a particular mood in the soul, which I can only express as a mood of resting in the bosom of spiritual beings. This soul mood is needed for any real experience of the spiritual worlds, just as in the physical human world, to be understood by other people, we need to produce an E sound through the larynx and the other organs of speech, bracket the German I, as the letter I is pronounced like a long E in English, close bracket. In the higher worlds, the soul feeling flowing from devotion brings about what makes it possible to pronounce an E in ordinary human speech. The experience of this kind of devotion is one of the vowels of the higher worlds. And we can experience nothing, read and hear nothing in the higher worlds if we cannot maintain this soul mood and then wait for what the beings of the higher worlds have to communicate because we offer them this mood of the soul. From such soul moods, from such a way of meeting the higher worlds, the vowel system of the cosmos is composed. You may have the feeling that the world surrounds you, but you cannot live in this world with your feeble human powers. You feel that what surrounds you while you live in your human body can only be perceived in the shadowy forms of your thoughts and ideas, or, better said, they reflect themselves from inside you. You may also come to feel that you cannot experience these imaginations directly. Your protecting, angelic being, in ordinary life, must reduce it. And when you feel all of this inwardly with the necessary tone of inner piety, then you have the ability to perceive one of the vowels of the spiritual world. A next level depends on the development of something I alluded to in my book titled The Threshold of the Spiritual World. We live ourselves into the spiritual world, as I have described there. The process shows that we come out of ourselves, identify ourselves with something else. But that is still not enough, not at all enough. We must not only be able to identify ourselves with other entities, we must also be able to transform ourselves into those entities, so that we really do not remain only what we were when we set out. We must be able to transform ourselves into other entities, to really become what we enter. A good preparation for becoming able to do that is the constant practice of loving interest for everything that surrounds us in the world. One can certainly not say how infinitely significant it is for the budding esotericist to see more and more that loving interest awakens us toward everything around us in the world. This statement, unfortunately, is not usually taken seriously enough. This is the reason the results achieved in esotericism are often disappointing. It is only too natural that people generally are interested only in themselves, with the necessary degree of interest. Even when we aren't willing to believe it, 
and give it another name, we are still mostly interested in ourselves and far less in anything else. Now it must also be said that in any case the world order has taken care that you must constantly have an interest in yourself. We must really make an effort not to be permanently interested in ourselves, for life on the physical plane inherently brings with it the condition that one be interested in oneself. I will disregard the fact that obviously when an illness occurs or this or that hurts us or is not in order, we are naturally interested in ourselves. This is in the order of things and we cannot act any other way. It is possible that even in such a case, through effort, one might achieve not being interested in oneself, but that is extremely difficult. It could be that one is attacked by an illness and is not particularly interested in the fact of having the illness, is quite indifferent to it, but is interested in how such a thing could arise out of the entire universe as this process. It could interest a person that at one point in the universe something happens that now lies inside his or her skin. Consequently, that person becomes interested in a serious disease as something that is outside the self. You will admit that what I have described is quite difficult, and it is no different with most things that one experiences on the physical plane. It is, in fact, very difficult to take the most ordinary thing that our senses and our thinking experience as if we were outside our skin and to look at it as an object. But that is exactly what we must attempt. Only because it is so terribly hard is it generally not attempted at all. Whoever conscientiously and enthusiastically performs the exercises described in title How to Know Higher Worlds will gradually succeed in attaining such a point of view. You will only reach it by detours because it is infinitely difficult, but you will attain it to a certain degree in exactly the same proportion as your interest in yourself is diminished, so that you are no longer an interesting subject for yourself, but merely an interesting object. You can do that. It does no harm. And it is even very useful to be interested in yourself if you have become an object. However, you should not confuse becoming an object of your own subject with the subject itself. In the same proportion in which we begin to become an object for ourselves, we begin to become interested in everything outside of us, in what surrounds us. Then we really gain the loving, interested devotion to the world and its manifestations. And when one cultivates this loving devotion of oneself to the world and its manifestations further and further, then this mood can attain that degree in the soul necessary for us to go out of ourselves and transform ourselves into other entities, to metamorphose ourselves. We gradually attain the ability to accomplish such things. But such things are really difficult for the human soul. So to make this loving devotion possible, 
we must try to find supports of all kinds. I will offer one support here that can really help a person. We can, in fact, begin by using the physical world, which is given to us first as the occasion for a sort of esoteric reading. I have often used an image that is a good one to start with. When we look at the countenance of a person we encounter, it is clear that what our eyes see, the boundaries, the contours of the skin, is not what matters. What matters is the soul that lives behind this facial expression. If we were to represent the facial lines in paper mache, the lines would not be what matters. The soul is what matters, what gives the lines form. In this way we can also look at what surrounds us in the external nature as if it were an external physiognomy. The materialistic researcher and the ordinary person approach the things in external nature as if they were studying only the external form of a person. It is as if one were to say about a person that whatever soul is within is neither here nor there. It is a misguided superstition of fanciful people, and I am only concerned with what the forms are, which can be measured and investigated with precision. That is how ordinary people investigate external nature. However, we can also realize that just as it is easy enough to see the human countenance as an expression, a physiognomy of the soul, so we can also regard all external nature not merely as it ordinarily reveals itself, but rather as the physiognomy of what lies behind as spiritual entities. Therefore it is good to look at the entire animal kingdom as a physiognomy of nature. In any case, another mental inquiry is necessary in order not to see what one usually sees, but to see instead something that can be described in this way. An eagle is flying in the air, rising toward the sun. That is the upward direction into the heights, into the spiritual worlds. I will take the eagle as the symbol of one's raising oneself into the spiritual worlds. I see behind the human brow the thoughts that strive upward with presentiment, like an eagle, into the spiritual worlds. I see how this upward striving expresses itself in the eagle as it rises upward, just as the human soul expresses itself in physiognomy. The eagle belongs to the physiognomy of external nature. I feel something in the eagle as it flies upward, something that gives the impression of the forehead in human physiognomy. I look at a bull lying there and chewing away, bound to physical nature, to earthly matter, in reality, it only lives in its element when it is totally absorbed in digestion. In all its life processes, it remains bound up with what it takes out of the earth. It appears to me to be as ponderous as the earth. I look at people and feel in my spirit that there also is something as heavy as earth, but it is kept in balance by the quality of the eagle. The bull-like quality isn't noticeable. I feel how the bull nature dwells in the human being, but doesn't make itself known to me in the same way as in the bull itself. This bull nature, this 
external, earthly heaviness becomes a physiognomic trait for human beings. It is just the same with leonine qualities. Physiognomically, the heart is for the human being what the lion is in external nature. And it can become the same for the entire higher and lower animal kingdom. Those who have connected the eagle, the bull, and the lion with the nature of the human soul has, have given us a replica, a symbol. They have attempted to read what is written out for us in the external animal kingdom and from it to understand, separated into individual characters, individual letters, what is experienced in combination in the human being. In brief, one could say that the physiognomy of the natural world is the animal kingdom. But physiognomy is not the only thing that interests us about the human being. When we try to enter souls more intimately, we are interested in what we call the countenance or the play of expression, what arises when the physiognomy comes into movement. In this case, we stand closer to the soul we perceive through the play of expression than to the soul we perceive only through physiognomy. And once again we can seek out how the play of expression relates to the spiritual world lying behind it, in this case by observing the realm of plants in a way similar to what we saw in the animal kingdom. We observe the blossoming of the plant realm in spring and all that it does through the summer. On the one hand the earth sends it out and on the other hand the forces of the spheres penetrate plants and lure out the living life that appears in the endless nuances of blossoms, growths, and greenings with their teeming and weaving. When we observe plants in this way and connect them with the spiritual reality of the cosmos that lies behind them, just as we relate a person's play of expression to the soul, then we are once again practicing what we should be. As a result, we can say that the realm of plants is the countenance of nature. What further of the soul that we see, what goes beyond the play of expression are gestures, the movements that flow out from the soul. Just as we can designate the animal kingdom as the physiognomy of nature and the plant realm as the countenance of nature, we can regard the forms of the mineral world as the gestures of nature. And one of the most beautiful things a person willing to practice meticulously esoteric reading and esoteric hearing can experience is to experience the mineral world in such a way that everywhere you can gradually assimilate the infinitely varied gestures of the spiritual beings of nature in the form of the limiting surfaces of the minerals and a peculiar relationship to the external cosmos in their translucence and transparency, in the crystalline glow of quartz, calcite, emerald, chrysoprase. When we do exercises of this sort and get to the point that we really can experience what is expressed in the otherwise dead realm of stone, it is the same as when a soul brings through a living gesture what is allied in it to expression. Practice in this way helps us to acquire a loving interest for all things that are outside us. 
then gradually we can rise to a stage in our development in which it becomes possible, if we attain the gift of seeing as well, to transform ourselves into the entities that exist outside ourselves. We realize that we have the power to do so. We can transform ourselves into all other people. The human being is capable of infinite transformations in this regard, but practice in the way described is necessary. Once again, we can pose a question, but before doing so I want to stress the element of feeling in what I have discussed. The first thing I mentioned brings us to a consciousness of being protected, to a feeling full of piety. The feeling that we can transform ourselves into the most diverse entities brings us to esteem the humanity of the human being, to value it at its true value. Not the humanity that we have within ourselves in the physical world, but the humanity we find only when we become another. Attaining the feeling of the capacity for transformation, we cannot leave... Excuse me, read that again. Attaining the feeling of the capacity for transformation cannot lead us to an arrogant attitude, for every single transformation tells us that we are not worth as much as the being into which we must transform ourselves. Having the awareness of the ability to transform ourselves brings us to humility. A feeling of deepest religious piety is linked to the awareness of the capacity of transformation. We can pose another question. Let us say we call out these powers of transformation from within ourselves. Are they not always within us? Yes, just as the powers of imagination are always within us, the powers of transforming ourselves are always within us. We must, however, call them forth in order to perceive spiritual beings. And in order to possess them consciously, we must develop them in the described way. In every moment we are not only ourselves but also every other being, only we don't develop ourselves to expand our consciousness as far as the other being. Why is that so? This will become clear when we consider one of the situations in life in which people transform themselves into another being on the ordinary physical plane. It does happen on the physical plane that we use the powers that are otherwise powers of transformation. We use that power without knowing anything about it. Every time we do our fellow human beings the injustice of making our own will lord over theirs in an unjustified way. It begins already when we tell lies to others. Through this we attach a wrong to them. One wins a certain power over them because the lies continue to work within them. The same is also true when we do something bad. The powers with which we do something bad are in fact the powers of transformation only applied in the wrong place. Everything bad in the world is the unlawful application of these powers of transformation. We can make deep insights into the secret of existence when we know where the injustice, evil, crime and destruction that happen in the world come from. 
They happen when one applies the best, most holy powers that exist, the powers of transformation, in a wrong way. There would be no evil in the world if there were no transformative powers. Once, in a public lecture, I even alluded to this peculiarity, that evil is a wrong application of powers that used in the proper place would lead to the highest good. A certain mood is present in our soul when we know it contains something that on the one hand can transform itself into all people and beings, and on the other hand can transform itself into egotism. We must be able to hold this mood up to the cosmos if we wish to hear in a spiritual sense. That is a second vowel. The mood we can have in relation to the secret of evil as I have presented it is the third vowel. What we experience when we know how a person can become evil, if we know this secret, that there are very lofty powers that can be used in a wrong way, then we have the mood of a third cosmic vowel. We must experience these moods, for that is the heart of the matter. So, we have spoken today of three cosmic vowels. We will speak of others tomorrow. I had to explain first the principle, which is crucial if we are to produce the inner relationship with the cosmos in our inner experience, through which we, in the dedication of our own soul powers, become listeners and readers of what happens out there in the spiritual world. The end of Lecture 3